0: If you weren't here last week, there are some handouts, um, a few left over here in the corner and a chair. We will not be covering that material. We covered it last week. Okay, well, let me pray, and then we're going to talk about the early church fathers. We might get into the history of heresy today, which is very interesting and very applicable to today, but um, I don't know if we'll get that far. Depends. So let me open in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for today. This is the day that you have made, the day that we come to worship you, that we gather together as a church. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would bless us, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive the truth, the truth that is in your word, that's been passed down all these centuries. help us to admire the men and women who went before us, who carried the faith to the next generation. And uh, help us, Lord, to see their faults as well as their strengths and to be faithful to Christ like many of them were. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen. Okay, so we went last week through why study church history. I gave you 12 reasons for that. And then we talked about the order of the New Testament books because church history starts in the Bible in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. That's when the church starts. Sometimes we think of church history as starting after the Bible ends. True, most of... The last 2,000 years is after the Bible ends, but it actually starts within the uh, book of Acts and the letters that Paul writes, Peter, James, all the way through Revelation. So we went through the apostles, what happened to them. Most of what we know about the apostles is through tradition or church history. Uh, Two of them died within the book of Acts, um, so we know what happened. But uh, most we do not. So we have to go with tradition. Some tradition sounds a little more unbelievable than others. And then we jumped into the apostolic fathers. These are the disciples of the apostles. So you have apostles who are a special office, a special gifted office that Christ appointed. They did miraculous gifts. They essentially started the churches. They founded the churches. And Paul especially went out to the Gentile world. ...as an apostle and started churches, preached the gospel, planted churches, went back through and appointed elders. But after that, we simply have pastor elders. And some of these pastor elders wrote and preached in such a way that we remember them today. And we call these men the apostolic fathers. I had a few questions last week. Why, why we would we call them fathers? The Bible does not say, or the Bible teaches we should not call people father. Well, this is not a title of respect or honor. It's not a title of uh, like the the father, the priest in the Catholic Church. This is father in time. So our forefathers, when we say that, we don't mean, like Jesus said, don't call them fathers. In, In the religious sense, a father is somebody you take your spiritual learning from. But in time, our father is somebody who came before us that's in our lineage. So the apostolic fathers are the oldest of The Christians after the apostles. And some of them knew the apostles. So they're called apostolic because they still lived, some of them, during that time frame. So here was our timeline. Um, I'm working on an overall timeline of the early church fathers. But you're going to have to wait on that. And uh, that's fine because we need some more uh, discussion about who these men were and why they're important. So here's the timeline. We're going up to about 110. Uh, That's when Ignatius, right after that was when Ignatius was martyred. And uh, Polycarp is in Smyrna. But essentially most of them had at least been born and were learning and growing in the faith. But the point of this timeline here is to see that they're overlapping with the book of Acts history and also uh, all the way through the end of the Bible. So you can see Clement especially. Clement is the earliest man that we have any writing from after the apostles. So we talked about Clement. He wrote what's called First Clement, which is a letter to the Corinthians. Then we were discussing and looking at Polycarp here. Let me go back. Polycarp. And uh, he lived from 69 to 155. So quite a long life for that day. The, the key thing here with Polycarp is he was a disciple of John. Anybody that John taught, we want to see what he had to say. We want to see what he did write. And they didn't write a lot back then, as far as what we have today. Some of what they wrote perished, and it's referenced elsewhere. But Polycarp's a great hero of the faith, because he's one of the first people to be martyred for the faith after the apostles. The only writing we still have from him is the letter to the Philippians. So that sounds like a biblical book, Philippians. But remember, those churches are still in existence. And there's not a lot of churches at that time. I mean, it's spreading. But Philippians is still a, a, or the church in Philippi is still there. And Polycarp's going to write to them. Guess what for? Fighting problems in the church. All of these early church fathers are essentially carrying forth what Paul wrote and telling these churches to stop fighting, to love one another, to obey the Lord. Now, there's a book written by someone else after Polycarp died, and it tells us the details about his death. It recounts them. It's called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. We don't know who wrote it. We can't say every word is accurate and true. But the consensus is generally it does tell us how he died and some of the conversations that were happening at that time. So it's considered to be one of the earliest genuine accounts of Christian martyrdom. We're going to find out the first 300 years of church history is just about being killed for the faith. I mean, obviously, it's about trusting in the Lord. And these men wrote uh, books and left sermons for us. But essentially, 90% of them will die for their Christian faith. Then there'll be sort of a break for a while. And then they'll start to be killed again in the medieval and Reformation times. So the, the reason that Polycarp is important is he connects the link between the 1st and 2nd century. He's sort of a bridge for us. How did Christians start to think about certain things from the time of the apostles to the 2nd century? And we're going to see as we go through church history that people are going to start to veer off. You wonder how certain things happen. How did the, the papacy come into being, for example? Or how was it that one man is appointed to lead the church... And the idea of elders disappears in church history. Some of those things we're going to see pretty early on here in church history. So here's Polycarp, though. He's, he's solid theologically. Um, he's from Smyrna. That's a city mentioned in Revelation 2. It's one of the churches that uh, Jesus tells John to write to. And based on the account of his death, he's stabbed to death at 86 years old. Then his body is burned at the stake. And those happen really quickly. Like he, he, They're starting the fire when they're stabbing him to death. That's often what they would do. The burning was a symbol of how this person is supposed to be punished forever and ever with fire. And the stabbing was to basically kill them before they started screaming and having people have sympathy for this old man who's screaming. Here's a line out of his epistle. I know that through grace you are saved, not of works but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. So it's by grace. And and again, so many people will look back to the early church, mainly Roman Catholics, and they will say, it's always been faith plus works. But I'm pointing out to you these lines from their writings to show you, right away they kept the apostolic teaching. They kept the truth of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, uh, of Romans, of all these books that Paul wrote. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works. So here's Smyrna. Here, it's in Asia Minor. You can see uh, Jerusalem there on the bottom right, and then uh, the the cities mentioned in Acts all the way up to Antioch, Tarsus, and then Paul writes letters to cities like Ephesus, and then Smyrna is mentioned in Revelation. And so we have the uh, the man Polycarp here in Smyrna. He is teaching. He is a theologian trained by the Apostle John. You can go to Smyrna today and see some ruins there. I want to show you some long quotes from the martyrdom of Polycarp. Because to get an idea of who he was, you need to hear about how he died. The martyrdom of Polycarp. Written about him, about his death. But as Polycarp entered into the stadium, so the Roman soldiers were bringing him into a stadium, a voice came to him from heaven Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. So again, we don't know. Did this really happen? Is this somebody afterwards writing about it? Remember, prophetic gifts and things were still being exercised early on in the church. I'll leave it to you as we read some of these things along the way to decide if they were true or not. Uh, And no one saw the speaker but those of our people, Christians, who were present heard the voice. And at length, when he was brought up, there was a great tumult. For they had heard that... Polycarp had been apprehended. So Christians are upset because their leader had been captured. Romans are coming out. The the Greek-speaking world is coming out. When then he was brought before him, the proconsul inquired whether he were the man. And on his confessing that he was, he tried to persuade him to to a denial, saying, Have respect for thine age and other things in accordance therewith, as it is their wont to say. So he's saying, look, you're an old man. Consider that. Polycarp, you've lived a long life. Why do you want to go and die like this now? Don't. Don't do that. Deny. Deny your Lord. So he tells him, swear by the genius of Caesar. Repent and say, away with the atheist. So Christians, here's the interesting thing. And this day, Christians were being called atheists. Why were they called atheists? Because they didn't believe in any of the Greco-Roman gods. Everyone in the Roman Empire believed in the pantheon of gods. You had hundreds that you could choose from. And it was fine whoever you wanted to worship. You didn't have to worship them all. But you had to worship one of the approved ones. And that wasn't hard because when Rome conquered somebody, they just brought in their god from that new country and gave him a new name or her a new name. But to be a Christian meant that you denied all of that that you denied all the Roman gods, all the Greek gods. And so we have here Christians being called atheists, denying that there is a God. So then Polycarp with solemn countenance looked upon the whole multitude of lawless heathen that were in the stadium and waved his hand to them and groaning and looking up to heaven, he said, away with the atheists. And he's actually talking to all the people there that are atheists. True true atheist, a pagan, doesn't believe in the one true God. But the magistrate knows what he's doing. So when the magistrate pressed him hard and said, swear the oath and I'll release thee, revile the Christ. Polycarp said, four score and six years have I been his servant and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Eighty-six years he served the Lord. Now Obviously he wasn't converted in the womb, but he's just saying as far back as I can remember, I've been a believer my whole life, and I'm not going to deny him now. I wouldn't persevere this long to deny my king who saved me. How many of us would think like this as we're being tied to the stake and they're pouring the, the fuel on the fire? So later in the martyrdom of Polycarp, we learn about his death. Whereupon the proconsul said, I have wild beasts here and I will throw thee to them except Thou repent. So repent, or I'm going to let the beast go. But he said, Call for them. For the repentance from better to worse is a change not permitted to us. But it is a noble thing to change from untowardness to righteousness. So he's saying, Basically, look, we're going to call for the beast. You need to turn from your ways. And Polycarp says, Go ahead. I'm not going to turn away from my Lord. So then the proconsul says to him again, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire if thou despisest the wild beast, unless thou repent. He's not saying repent from sin. He's saying turn away. Repent. Turn away from your Christian belief. And if animals don't scare you, then I'm going to burn you up with fire. But Polycarp said, Thou threatenest that fire which burneth for a season, and after a little while is quenched. For thou art ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why delayest thou? Come, do what thou wilt. So he says, Fire doesn't scare me. You should be scared of the fire, he says, because you're going to burn with eternal punishment unless you repent. And he says, Hurry up, light the match. Now it sounds like King James. He didn't speak in King James back then. This is a translation of. Polycarp's, uh, the martyrdom of Polycarp. They wrote in Greek in the early church. A lot of these things got translated in the 1800s, so it sounds a little bit like King James into English. Saying these things and more besides, he was inspired with courage and joy. This is Polycarp. And his countenance was filled with grace, so that not only did it not drop in dismay at the things which were said to him, but on the contrary, the proconsul was astounded. And sent his own herald to proclaim three times in the midst of the stadium, Polycarp hath confessed himself to be a Christian. So you get the sense they're a little bit scared to kill Christians. This is for one of the first persecutions in the Roman Empire. And they want to make sure they've given him, pl- like, like Pilate with Jesus, plenty of opportunities to turn away, plenty of opportunities to save his own flesh. Now he sends somebody out to yell out, that Polycarp has denied or has confessed being a Christian, which is illegal. When this was proclaimed by the herald, the whole multitude, both of Gentiles and Jews who dwelt in Smyrna, cried out with ungovernable wrath and with a loud shout This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the puller down of our gods. That's a key statement right there. They're accusing him of dismantling their religion. I don't think Christians were running around knocking down statues, knocking down idols. The idea here is that he's dismantling. He's destroying the pagan religion because Christianity is spreading in Smyrna. And they're saying this guy's been here longer than any of them. He needs to be punished. He teaches numbers not to sacrifice to the pagan gods nor worship the pagan gods. Saying these things, they shouted aloud and asked the Asiarch, the leader, Philip, Uh, to let a lion loose upon Polycarp. So let a lion eat him up. One of the most painful deaths that you could go through at the time. Now there's this back and forth throughout the whole uh, account here. The leader, Philip, says that it's not lawful to send the lion after him because the games have already been closed. The sports have come to a close. We've let the lions eat people. Now the games have shut down. We can't do it that way. Then the crowd thought fit to shout out with one accord that Polycarp should be burned alive. Burn him alive then. For it must needs be that the matter of the vision should be fulfilled, which was shown to him concerning his pillow. So supposedly Polycarp saw in a dream that his pillow was burning up while he was praying. And he says, I must be burned alive. He's confirming they should go ahead and do it. So he was burned alive. They're stabbing. There's a later drawing in the 1600s where he's, he's burning up and they're stabbing him with a sword at the same time. So he died for the faith. Famous line, though, is that he says, you know, fourscore score in six years I've served him. How can I deny my Lord now? And, of course, away with the atheists. There's sarcasm even in the early church here. He's saying, away with the atheists, talking about them. Okay, Ignatius of Antioch. He was the pastor of the church in Syrian Antioch. This is the Antioch of the book of Acts. Located in the Syria region, even today. He was a disciple of John again. And a friend of Polycarp. So if he's a disciple of John, Polycarp's a disciple of John. They're going to know each other. You can just imagine as young men, they met John And they trained under John and they followed John around to hear about Jesus, to hear about the Lord's teachings. Of course, much of the artwork we have today is is much later in time. But how do you think Ignatius is going to die? What What does the artwork show us? Lions, especially Ignatius. They end up painting and drawing him a lot with lions. Some are more bloody than others. So the lions would be let loose on anybody, criminals that they threw into the stadium. Uh, But Christians especially would be eaten by lions. Not a comfortable death. You're being ripped apart, limb by limb, muscle by muscle. And these lions were trained to be very ferocious and kept very hungry. And probably they would beat the Christians before they put them in there. So there's plenty of blood for the lions to smell and and get excited about. We have a lot of letters of Ignatius because he's being carried to Rome to be killed. So he's arrested in Smyrna, I'm oh not Smyrna, Antioch, sorry, for his teaching. And he's being taken very slowly, mostly a land route all the way to Rome. And as he goes along, he's writing letters to these churches and having his attendants basically send them out. So we have seven of them still today. He's killed as a martyr in Rome, probably somewhere between 98 and 117. So likely the Apostle John is still alive here. One of the problems with Ignatius is that he promoted a single bishop form of church government. So the Roman Catholics really like Ignatius. I like Ignatius, but every man will often have their own emphasis in ministry and some... Some might have uh, even more, especially theologians who write a lot, will have a focus. And Ignatius looked around and he said, there's a problem I see in the church. The elders are sometimes disagreeing. And it makes things harder to, I mean, I'm simplifying this, but he said, it makes things harder to get get what you want done in the church. So let's have one of the elders kind of, not just be the, the spokesperson and the preacher, let's have one of the elders be above the rest. And we'll call him a term for elder, bishop. And the other elders we'll call presbyters. So you have the bishop and then underneath him you have presbyters. And then of course you have deacons who serve as well. But as far as the leadership of the overall church, the bishop became the prominent leader. Not just one of the elders, but separate from the elders. Not just a a head pastor or senior pastor, even though sometimes bishops are still like that in the early church. He's saying, look, follow the bishop, the one guy in your church. And I'm glad you have elders, but we need to focus on the single man as the leader. He also taught that the Sabbath had been replaced by the Lord's Day. This was not taught in the New Testament. They did not just exchange the Sabbath and and the Lord's Day. They did not just Say, the Lord's Day is the Jewish Sabbath. Follow the law of the Sabbath. This comes in with Ignatius and later church fathers. The Sabbath was for Jews, that's Saturday. And the Lord's Day was on Sunday. And it was for New Covenant believers, for Christians. But the idea of the Christian Sabbath will take off in church history. And the laws of the Sabbath get put on a Sunday, Lord's Day as well. Even today, still in America, There are certain Sabbath day laws in some small towns with regards to alcohol sales. Um, Ignatius here, Antioch, you can see in the red. Uh, Many people were launched from Antioch, including Paul in Acts 11. It was sort of the, the place you send out the missionaries to found these other churches. So there he is, a little bit more bloody now. We've got the blood dripping off of him as the lions gnaw on him. Not a pleasant experience. Many, many Christians would be killed this way. So just a bit of his letter to the Magnesians. Isn't that a nice name for a town? Magnesians? It was just south of Ephesus. It might have been on the map here. No, it's just south of Ephesus. A small town there. He says, Now I write these things, my dear friends. Now because I have learned that any of you are actually like that. Talking about some of the issues going on but as one who is less than you. I want to forewarn you not to get snagged on the hooks of worthless opinions, but instead to be fully convinced about the birth and the suffering and the resurrection that took place during the time of the governorship of Pontius Pilate. These things were truly and most assuredly done by Jesus Christ, our hope, from which may none of you ever be turned aside. So what he's saying here is, Look, don't get snagged up as a believer. Don't, don't get caught up in what the, the Romans, the world, is saying about Jesus. What happened in the gospel accounts? The Jewish soldiers were told, and the Roman soldiers, not to tell anybody what happened, to make up a story. And we see that from that point forward, people want to deny these things happened, that, that the Lord was resurrected That he was born a virgin. This starts very early in the church. And he's saying, Ignatius is, that we can't get snagged on that. They're hooks of worthless opinions. They're just opinions about who Jesus was. Interestingly though, in writing this, it's one more evidence outside the Bible, which the Bible's enough for us, but one more historical letter that shows these things did happen to Jesus. That's why the secular world has pretty much given up saying Jesus didn't exist. They just deny the miraculous now. You used to, you know, decades ago, they would say Jesus never existed. He wasn't a real person. He's just made up. That's silly because we have plenty of historical documents outside the Bible. But the Bible's enough for believers. Chapter 13, which these aren't really chapters. They're just paragraphs in this letter. Uh, I encourage you to look these up online. Um, they're, they're quick reads. Be eager, therefore, to be firmly grounded in the precepts of the Lord and the apostles, in order that in whatever you do, you may prosper physically and spiritually in faith and in love in the Son and the Father and the Spirit in the beginning and at the end, together, so prosper in the faith, together with your most distinguished bishop. So he's saying, your head guy there, the one guy who leads the church, the bishop. So we're already seeing... This kind of change happening right after the apostles. And these most distinguished people around know about him. And that beautifully woven spiritual crown, which is your council of presbyters. Presbyter is a Greek word for elder. It just means older person. Older in the faith means mature in the faith. It's a word used in the Bible for elder. So is bishop. Bishop is a Latin word, but in, in the word in Greek is used for elder as well. But they, they're starting to separate here. So elder and bishop become two different offices instead of two names for the same office. And then he also mentions the deacon. Be subject to the bishop and to one another. You can get the sense that maybe these Christians were saying, hey, who is this bishop guy and why does he think he's above the elders, the the council of elders? And, And he's saying, look, obey the bishop." and to one another, as Jesus Christ in the flesh was to the Father. And as the apostles were to Christ and to the Father, that there may be unity, both physical and spiritual. So there's maybe some disunity. Maybe they're pushing back against this single leader guy. And he's saying, go ahead and accept that. It's it's basically more practical. And he's trying to make a theological argument by saying, Christ submitted to the Father, apostles submitted to Christ. Any questions on Polycarp or Ignatius? Two guys who died for the faith. Well, let's talk about this old guy here. Um, we don't know a lot about him. But his name is Papius or Papius, Papius of Hierapolis. You can say it either way. Papius. Papias. It's, it's not a, an English word. So often you'll hear different. Like in the Bible, you can say Cephas or Cephas. Cephas for Peter is actually the Greek sounding. But in English, that's hard for us. We say Cephas. Uh, Papias of Hierapolis, he's from the city of Heropolis, and he wrote one book called The Interpretations of the Sayings of the Lord. But it's now lost. It's now lost. The only reason we know about it is because two guys later in church history that we'll talk about, Irenaeus and Eusebius, quoted and mentioned this book. And it's thought that what it was was a commentary on the sayings of Jesus. The sayings of the Lord, the sayings of Jesus, would have been things passed down verbally through Christians before the Bible was completed. So how did you know about the things that Jesus did before John wrote the Gospel of John, for example, in the 60s? Or other books in the 50s and 60s were written. Well, you knew about it because the apostles taught it. And people started writing these little parts down. So you can imagine the Sermon on the Mount, for example, sort of being transcribed on some paper and passed around in the church. And then the other church said, hey, let, let us borrow that. We'll make a copy. It's not inspired. Nobody thought it was inspired. But this is how some of the teachings of Jesus went around. And I'm sure if they're from the apostles that it matched what the apostles would later write in Scripture. So what's important about Papias Well, a couple of things, or a few things, actually. He said that Mark wrote his gospel from the accounts of Peter. You've probably heard that. Where did Mark get all this? He got it from Peter. Maybe he was there with the disciples as they followed Jesus around. But he never says that in the Gospel of Mark. And usually a book will be rejected from the Bible if it's not written by an apostle. But Mark has such a close tie with Peter according to Papias and other early church historians, that Mark is accepted, of course. We, we know today that's obvious, but early on there were a lot of challenges to what should be recognized as Scripture. And then he also said Matthew wrote in Hebrew. Now this gets today's scholars really excited because they, they tend to say, well, that means Matthew wrote first in Hebrew, then in Greek it was translated, and of course we have it in English today. Here's why they get really excited. The critical scholars especially. Because they don't have to stick to the Greek text that we have today. They can go backwards into Hebrew and kind of play with it. So they'll say things like, well, you know, Matthew says this, but if it was translated into Hebrew, and usually it's some crazy weird thing that doesn't match with the rest of the Bible. So they back translate it, sometimes into Aramaic too. We don't know that Matthew first wrote in Hebrew. He just said Matthew wrote something in Hebrew. It could have been the sayings of the Lord, something like that. It could have been that Matthew wrote in Greek. That's what we have today. Passed down, of course. And then later he transcribed that into Hebrew for his people. Here's what's important, though. God didn't think the Hebrew version was worth preserving. Meaning that God's preserved every book of the Bible For us, we have manuscripts on every book of the Bible that date way back. And we have the Greek one. So that's what we go with. And I think because of that, it was the first one that Matthew wrote. It was the one spread around all the churches. Either him or someone else later translated it into Hebrew. Uh, Eusebius is going to make fun of um, Papias. Because he's a small man of mental capacity. Why? He believed in a literal millennium. He believed in the 1,000-year reign of Christ. He took Revelation 20 literally. He was what we would call pre-millennial today. This was the common view in the early, early church. Later, things will start to change after Augustine. But even Eusebius is not in agreement with Papias. And he basically says, the guy's crazy. The guy's crazy. So if somebody says you're crazy based on your end times views, you can look back to Papias. Maybe you are crazy for your end times views, but... Hopefully you're biblical. Um, he's called the hero of John. So he probably was one of these students under John, his disciples. He was also a companion of Polycarp. And he's called a man of old time by Irenaeus. So he might even be older than Polycarp. Uh, we're not sure. And this is just somebody's later guess at what he looked like. An old man. Long beard. So there's Hierapolis there again, right next to Smyrna. Right next to Ephesus. It's famous for its hot springs. Which people still go to in Turkey today. The ruins are there. I mean these are real people in history. These aren't just made up stories. Fictional accounts. In uh, that city. There's a place named after the apostle Philip. Supposedly he was killed in Hierapolis. You remember when we talked about Philip earlier. And uh, it was probably just a church that people later said, oh, that's where he's buried. Philip is buried there. So here's everybody we've talked about so far, where they're located. Clement's in Rome. If we start on the upper left. Clement's in Rome. And a book we're going to talk about in a moment, The Shepherd of Hermas, is written from there. Polycarp's over in Smyrna. Papius is in Heropolis. Ignatius in Antioch. Two other writings we'll look at. The Didache written probably around Israel somewhere. And the Epistle of Barnabas down in Alexandria. So you can already see by 100 AD, Christianity has spread everywhere. At least in this part of the Roman Empire. I I think it's probably spread up into Gaul already. North of Rome. What we call France today. Certainly all the way down to Egypt though. So back to our timeline we already looked at. Any questions on those guys? Those men? Remember Polycarp, pre-millennial, because we will come back to end times views later on. All right, let's talk about some interesting early writings. We don't know who wrote these three books, but we have them today, and they tell us a lot. The Shepherd of Hermas was an allegorical story. It was essentially the uh, Pilgrim's Progress of the early church. If you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, he takes scripture and he turns it into a story. And, you know, the Christian, the guy, um, he goes on a, a journey to the celestial city and he receives armor to fight and a sword of the spirit and he fights the dragon and so on. Well, The Shepherd of Hermas is like that, but a little more strange, um, a little more imaginary. So it's written from Rome in the, sec- the mid second century. And it's apocalyptic in style. It, it sounds a little bit like revelation. It sounds a bit like uh, fighting the evil beasts that are coming up from the ground. So it has a lot of allegory and symbolism. So those of us, which you should be like this, who take the Bible literally, we don't typically want to go to the Shepherd of Hermas and find a lot of doctrine there. It just tells us some of the things that were being circulated. Sometimes we can see some doctrine hidden behind the story. But let's not make too much out of it. And I will show you a sample of it uh, just to get a good laugh in a minute. The Epistle of Barnabas, a letter supposedly written by Barnabas of the Bible. Not, it's not because it's too late. It's 130 AD. Uh, he's writing from Alexandria down in Egypt. Alexandria was a famous place for scholarship, for knowledge. There was a huge library there until it got burned accidentally by the Romans. But the Jews had migrated there long before the time of Christ and the Jews, especially under Philo, one of their philosophers, really made allegory important and they taught that allegory was a, a great way to teach people and this eventually comes over into Christianity. So we see the epistle of Barnabas, who the author's not Barnabas, but somebody just using that name. If you use a famous person's name, then you'll get your book read, right? So that's what people are going to do in ancient times. This one's very allegorical. And the interesting thing is it tries to separate Christianity from Judaism. It tries to make sure there's a clear distinction. Even though he's learning probably allegory from the Jewish tradition there in Alexandria, he then turns around and uses it to separate it from Christianity. And we're going to look at some of the samples from a couple of these. Probably the best one of these early three books is the Didache. Didache... It's Greek meaning the teaching. Or we could expand it to the teaching of the 12 apostles. This is very interesting because it wasn't discovered until the 19th century, the 1800s. They had heard about this thing called the Didache. A guy is just sort of rumbling around in some old manuscripts. And he finds something that hasn't been seen before, or at least recorded. And it's called the Didache. What is it? It's an early catechetical work. Anybody know what a catechism is? A catechism is a way that you teach new believers or children the basics of the faith. So today, catechisms work like this. You ask the the child a question and they repeat the answer they memorized. Uh, This was probably just something that you read and tried to memorize the points. It's very short. It's just basically short paragraphs that they would have to memorize. And it's an early church document. It's probably used to train and instruct new believers right before baptism. Here's what I get excited about. Well, there's a lot to be excited about in Didache, but it's basically a membership class for new Christians in the early church. And sometimes people say, well, I don't need to go to a membership class. Well, these early church fathers thought it was important that you learned a few things before you got baptized. And then when you got baptized, you officially joined the church. And so they would have you do this study. Maybe 8 weeks, 12 weeks, a few months. And you would have to fast certain times. And you'd be trained clearly what the church believes in this short document. Not everybody had a Bible. They couldn't just say, here's your free Bible, take it home and read it. Very expensive to make the scrolls at the time that were in the Bible. Each church had a Bible, or most of the Bible at this time. New Testament and Old Testament But many of the New Testament letters were still being copied and spread around. And they couldn't afford to just hand you a Bible. But they could afford to teach you this and maybe scratch it on some paper for you to take home. So let's let's sample some of the Shepherd of Hermas. This is his fourth vision. So the Shepherd is a a man uh, and he lives in this area and he's in the area of Rome. And he's having these visions from the Lord. And so he gets these visions and they tell him to keep going. And it says, I approached a little further, brethren. And behold, I saw dust reaching as it were up to heaven. And I began to say to myself, are cattle coming and raising dust? And it was about a furlong away from me. When the dust grew greater and greater, I supposed that it was some portent. The sun shone out a little and lo, I saw a great beast like some leviathan. And fiery locusts were going out of his mouth. The beast was in size about a hundred feet and its head was like a piece of pottery. And I began to weep and to pray the Lord to rescue me from it. And I remembered the word which I had heard. Do not be double-minded, Hermas. Thus, brethren, being clothed in the faith of the Lord and remembering the great things which he had taught me, I took courage and faced the beast. Sounds like Pilgrim's Progress when he's facing Apollyon. Um, Except this one's, you know, more... Fantastical, not as scripturally um, connected. And as the beast came on with a rush, it was as though it could destroy a city. I came near to it, and the Leviathan, for all its size, stretched itself out on the ground and put forth nothing except its tongue. And it did not move at all until I had passed it by. And the beast had on its head four colors black, then the color of flame, and blood, then golden, then white. So there's this huge beast. He's just got to be strong and pass right by it. And just be of great courage. Um, I didn't put the quote in here about it. Looking like a whale. I thought that was the funniest part. It Basically, he says it looks like a whale. Just this big whale laying on the ground with locusts coming out of his mouth in these different colors. All right, didache. So again, little sentences, little statement of faith in a sense. It's really not a statement of faith. It's more of a, a church covenant like we do today, how you're supposed to live as a Christian. It's the way of the Christian life, not the way to being a Christian. It's not how to get saved. It's now you are saved. You need to make sure you're following the Lord. So one of the greatest lines here, one, one, the very first sentence, there are two paths, one of life and one of death. And the difference is great between the two paths. And that's just great right there. That'll start a sermon. And so the whole point is, choose the right path. Now that you're a Christian, you can do that. You can live for the Lord. And then the next sentence, Now the path of life is this. First you shall love the God who made you, your neighbor as yourself, and all things that you would not want done to you, do not do unto another. So he's just going to pick up teachings from the Bible, summarize them, and this is for the new believer to memorize. Sentence three and the doctrine of these maxims is as follows: Bless them that curse you, and pray for your enemies. Fast on behalf of those that persecute you. For what reward is there if you love them that love you? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? But love them that hate you, and you will not have an enemy. It's very similar to Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. This is maybe a sermon somebody preached and they wrote it down and, and turned it into this document. This would be today if you took one of your favorite Charles Spurgeon sermons home. And you worked on memorizing it because it was so good. Think of it like that. Uh, Chapter 2, sentence 2. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not corrupt youth. So so that's kind of an application of some of these. That's not directly from the Bible. You shall not corrupt youth. You shall not commit fornication. You shall not steal. You shall not use soothsaying. You shall not practice sorcery. You shall not kill a child by abortion. Neither shall you slay it when born shall not covet the goods of your neighbor. So sometimes people today will say, look, abortion's not in the Bible. You can't find the word there. Well, it says you shall not kill. That's pretty obvious to Christians. But you almost get the sense that the Didache wants to go a little further and say, even abortion is killing. You shall not kill a child by abortion or after they're born. So very early in the church. In the, I, I think the Didache was probably written before hundred. AD, there's some debate. But before the first century is over, you have Christians saying, don't commit abortion. Thou shalt not withhold thy hand from thy son or from thy daughter, but from their youth thou shalt teach them the fear of God. Spank your kids. It's not something that Christians came up with later. It's not just the Old Testament law. It's a New Testament teaching as well. Discipline your children, including uh, physical discipline. Nine five. Uh, but let none eat or drink of your Eucharist. This is the Lord's Supper, the communion. It's an early term for that. It's going to get misused later so we don't use Eucharist much today. Um, he says, Don't let them take it unless they've been baptized in the Lord's name. For concerning this also did the Lord say, Give not that which is holy to the dogs. So don't let unbelievers join you in the Lord's Supper. There are some churches today who do that. They just say anybody, everybody, whatever you want. You know, there's a little tray over there while I'm preaching and back there. And just go and just shove it in your mouth. We warn people. We try to say, look, you have to be a believer, trusting in Christ alone. And then it's up to them to know that and take it. But there needs to be some kind of warning there. Appoint for, therefore for yourselves bishops and deacons. So this is before Ignatius. There's only bishops and deacons. Bishops are elders. Later, Ignatius is going to introduce a separation, and later churches will follow that. But at this point, you just have elders and deacons, like the scripture speaks up. Uh, Bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord, meek men, and not lovers of money, and truthful and approved. For they also minister to you the ministry of the prophets and teachers. There were prophets and teachers. These are the things that have been taught since the time of the apostles that have been recorded in scripture. Teach these things and then 16:2 but be frequently gathered together seeking the things which are profitable for your souls for the whole time of your faith shall not profit you except you be found perfect at the last time so gather together come to church is what he's saying this is profitable for you it helps you and it's going to strengthen you in the faith and help you to be found perfect when Christ returns not 100% without sin but completed perfected matured is the idea all right, any questions on that before we go to our next uh we got 10 minutes to introduce heresy. You all ready for me to introduce heresy? Got to find it here. Any questions on the early church fathers? You guys already know all of it? You ready for the quiz? Here's a, here's a couple of questions for you. The earliest church father, time-wise. Anybody? Amy, you know it? You look like you have an answer. Somebody say Clement over here. Clement. 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 Maybe even mentioned in the book of Philippians, right? Probably is. I think, I think that's Clement mentioned in Philippians 4.3. Okay. Um, people said he was crazy because he believed in a literal millennium. Who's that? Man, Ernest, you got a hundred so far. The free book. Uh, I, I did want to recommend a book, but it's not free. Um, I do have some books to give away. Y'all got to remind me to get these out and give them away at the beginning of class. So you show up early. Oh, Autumn's giving me the free book. Did you write in it yet? Okay, here it is. The free book. The one I recommended last week. Last week. See how small it is. Nobody went and got it from the bookstore. It's this small. Church History 101, the highlights of 20 centuries by Sinclair Ferguson, Joel Beeky, Michael Haken. I said it was 80 pages. Let's see. No, it's 94. But look how small they are. It's a great little primer to get you started. Um, Once you get this, I also recommend uh, the four-volume set. But just start with volume one because it covers what we're talking about here on um, church history by Nick Needham. It's called 2,000 Years of the Power of Christ. And it's what we read in seminary, but it's very down to earth. It's, very it's a, a Presbyterian guy who taught in Africa, a reformed guy for a long time. And he just goes through each century in those books. It's really helpful, especially the first volume. Okay, well, since you gave the book to give away, Autumn, what's a good question for the, uh, for the group? By the way, most book giveaways are right at the beginning, so you want to be on time, so you can be part of the book giveaways. Oh, okay. Yeah, ask about something geographical. geographical. <laughs> okay, the city uh, Magnesia was closest to what biblically mentioned city? Anybody? Raise your hand if you got it. All right. Ephesus. Okay. Sean's sister. I don't remember your name, but what is it? Serenity, all right. Serenity gets the book of church history to read before next week. All right, this is a fun, exciting one here. The history of heresy. We're going to go through all the early heresies in the church. We won't get very far today. We'll, we'll cover it in two weeks. Next week we're having a missionary come. And so this class, he'll be teaching us about his mission to Mexico. Uh, very excited about this. This is one of our... Uh, First missionaries, we already supported one to Chile, but Eduardo is going to Mexico. So come back next week for that at nine. Um, but we're going to cover all the early church heresies, and I'm going to try to connect them to something today. Thankfully, some of them died out and don't, didn't stick around, but most of them, they just come back every century, every decade. So the history of heresy, ancient eras, and the roots of modern cults. The very first one, Ebionism. This was the very first one recorded in church history. Now, there's, there's some others that are in uh, John's writings. They're not named. They're kind of hinted at as they're developing. They don't develop fully until later and they get named. But as far as a named one, this is the first one. It's, it's from the Jewish Christian sect here. And it was first mentioned in the second century. Apparently, it was connected to Judaizers who defected from the Jerusalem church. So you remember Paul's writing to the Galatians and he's warning them about the Judaizers? And many of Paul's writings, there's this issue of Judaizers. Those who want to make Christians obey the law and be circumcised just to be saved. It's works righteousness. And the Jerusalem church was mostly Jewish Christians. And and as Jerusalem is about to be sieged, the Christians leave. It's said that there was a revelation that one of the prophets in the church said, God is telling us to leave before the Romans come. So they all left and they went to this place called Pella. And it's thought that this heresy was a group of Jewish Christians who separated and started this heresy at that time. That would be around 70 A.D. Most of what we know about them comes from the early church fathers who wrote polemics against them. So when they're considered heretical, people are going to preach against that. And that's what lasts through the ages. Their works are tossed aside and destroyed. The, uh, the works of the heretics. Most of what we know about them so comes from the early church fathers. Origen, one of the early church fathers, suggests that the name is from the Hebrew word Evion, which means poor. So maybe they were saying you had to live a poor life in a in a cave with nothing kind of idea to be truly saved. Here's the problem. They held to an altered gospel according to the Hebrews. This is a writing that they had a book. And they said, "Look, you Gentiles have Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, but we have a special book, the gospel according to the Hebrews, which some people say, well, that's that book Matthew talked about. Remember Papius? He said Matthew wrote in Hebrew. Today's scholars think there's a connection there. I don't think there's that much of a connection because if Matthew did write something, it's not going to be heretical um, like these guys believe. So they're descendants of the Judaizers, essentially, theologically speaking. They said Christians were required to follow the Mosaic law. According to Justin Martyr, a later writer, the Ebionites believed that the law of Moses was obligatory for all Christians. You need to sacrifice, you need to obey the purification rules, you need to wear the clothing, you need to not eat pork, not eat, I mean, on and on uh, throughout the Mosaic law. So Irenaeus comes up with this term, Ebionite, or at least is the first one to write it down uh, a couple of hundred years after it starts. They said, we're different, the Ebionites did, we're different from you Pauline Christians. We're Gentiles, most of us, so we would be considered Pauline Christians. And then there was another heresy called the Gnostic Christians, which we'll look at. They said, we're different from the Gnostic Christians. Though later, Ebionite groups will become Gnostic. Because Gnosticism just infects everything. It's all over the place today. It just infects everything. So they couldn't help bringing in some Gnosticism. They said, Jesus was a great man, a great prophet, endowed with the spirit, exalted as king. What'd they leave out? They didn't call him God. They denied the deity of Jesus. You have an early group saying, and and this is what Judaizers would often end up with, because if you focus on the Mosaic law and how to be saved there, you don't really need the atonement. So they denied the deity of Christ. They denied the Trinity, the virgin birth, the death of Jesus as an atonement for original sin. They believed Jesus was just adopted. You're going to see this come up a lot in early heresies. Jesus was just adopted as the son of God at his baptism. He's a regular man who lives a really holy life. He's obeying the Mosaic law perfectly, so God chooses him at his baptism. He gets the Holy Spirit. He's adopted as the son. Now he can become the king and priest of Israel. Any today? Any Ebonites still around? Well, if it's a heresy, you can expect it's still going to be around. I don't even have a picture of it up here, but there is this Hebrew Roots movement. And a big section of the Hebrew Roots movement is just trying to live as a Judaizer. You have to obey the law. They even have the tassels on their clothes. They'll often, I even saw one on social media that I knew. They were Gentile believers. They converted to Hebrew Roots. They got remarried according to the Hebrew Roots Jewish ceremony. And they saw that as being recognized by God. And they wear the tassels. They, they follow the food laws. It's very much a, a concerning heretical movement. What's that a symbol for? Anybody know? Islam. Islam is basically Ebonites in that they believe Jesus was a prophet, Jesus was a great man, Jesus was all these things. They don't really talk much about adoption, but they do view Jesus as a great prophet, but not the Son of God. And then there's a big one of these down in San Antonio. I think it's on 1604. Uh, or maybe 410, Unitarian Universalists. You know, two heretical groups that joined up later in church history. You have Unitarians who don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in the deity of Christ. And Universalists, they believe everybody's going to be saved, and they join up together to form a church association in more recent history. So that's the, the ones I could think of. I mean, maybe you guys can think of more. All right, docetism or docetism. If you want to be more Greek, you say docetism. If you want to be more English, you say docetism. Or maybe that's Latin and English. They said, okay, Christ is fully divine, but he's not a human. So they're the opposite of the Ebionites. So two early heresies and they take opposite views of Christ. He only seemed to be human. But did not really have a body of human flesh. He was just fooling everybody when he died on the cross. The reason he can't be human is because the flesh is evil. Not just like Paul talks about. Like we're born with a sin nature. That's what Paul means. But all flesh, all matter, anything physical is evil. Or if it's not evil, it's basically the source of all evil. So the Savior could never have come into contact with the flesh. He would never be fleshly. He would never be human because we're all evil. Not just born with an evil nature, but literally a cell for example, by itself is considered evil. A couple of early believers in this doctrine. Valentinius. Valentinius was a famous Christian in Rome. He came in. He started teaching these views and he got some support. He was a wealthy man and they basically finally figured out what he was teaching and kicked him out early on. Marcion, we'll talk about next week. Marcion was also wealthy. He came to Rome. He started teaching false doctrine. And they not only kicked him out, they gave him his money back that he gave to the church. You can just imagine Marcion saying, you can't kick me out. I gave all this money that my father gave me to the church. You have to let me stay here and teach. And they're like, here's your money. Get out of here. Any Docetists today, well, we're back to Islam here. They say in uh, the Surah 4, 157, They slew him not, talking about Jesus, nor crucified him, but it appeared so unto them. So even though they don't believe he's the son of God, they do think it was just an appearance. He didn't actually die on the cross. It just looked like he did. It wasn't real. So that's the docetists. One more minute here to introduce Gnosticism. This one's just hilarious, but it's it's not if you realize how prevalent it is today. Again, Gnostics said, matter is evil. This comes from Greek philosophy. The Docetists and the Gnostics pick up this idea that matter is evil. And it's still there today. Matter is evil. The physical, anything that you can touch or see or feel is evil. Only the spiritual is good. The things you can't see are spiritual. Therefore, that's what's good. There is a supreme being. There is also a demiurge who created the world. That's a little bit lesser than the supreme being. Then there is a Christ. They said, yeah, there's a Christ, but he's a phantom or some would say he's just united to Jesus the man. So Christ is the Messiah who gets united to the man named Jesus or just this phantom appearance. Here's what they believe. Pursue mysticism or special knowledge through Christ to the elite through intellectual process as a central goal of life. So here's how I'll say it. They would entice you by saying, oh, you're a Christian. Have you you studied the special writings? Have you studied the hidden writings, the secret stuff, the real important stuff about Jesus? Have you come to that special knowledge to live a more holy life, to live a more rich, prosperous life? And if you had money, you'd say, I want some of that. Here, take my money. And if you're intellectual, you're going to tend towards that. So the central goal of life is to get this special knowledge. And we'll stop there. Next week I'll show you how ludicrous this stuff is. And then we'll connect it to a lot of stuff going on today in so-called Christianity. Lord, thank you for our time here today. Uh, We know that there's so much to study. We just pray, Lord, that these heresies would not infect our minds, our hearts, our church. Help us to know about them so that we can be protected by them. And help us, Lord, to be good students of church history. uh, So that we might speak to others about Christ and speak to others about false teaching. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Two weeks from now, we've got lots of heresies left. So be back then. Come back next week for Eduardo is Cuerda talking about his mission to Monterrey, Mexico.